in the early 20th century, a London-based newspaper sent out a question for the readers to answer, and that question was, what's wrong with the world today? At the time, the First World War was just on the horizon. Political tensions were high in Europe. And of all people, G.K. Chesterton answered the newspaper article. He was a Christian apologetic and philosopher, very influential on people like C.S. Lewis. And Chesterton wrote in response to what's wrong with the world today, he gave a two-word answer, I am. And so Chesterton, writing from his Christian worldview, he saw that his own sin, his own shortcomings, his own issues were contributing to the problems facing the world in his day. And as followers of Christ, we who know our sin, know the weight of our sin, know that our sin can cause harm to others, we might answer like Chesterton if we were asked, what's wrong with the world today? We might say, I am. Now, if you asked our secular culture, specifically younger millennials and older generation Z secular individuals, those who are outside the faith, the response would not be, I am. By and large, the response as they pointed the finger toward older generations would be, you are. You're the problem with the world today. People in their early to mid-20s, that is, outside of Christ, we have some lovely brothers and sisters in their 20s here with us, but outside of Christ, they're feeling overwhelmed by the actual problems in the world and the perceived problems in the world, and they are saying... Those who come before us have put us in this position. If you read anything about the younger culture, that's what they think. They believe that the climate is changing because of older people's decisions and neglect. That racism is here because of older people's issues. Like in my dad's generation, they believe people are not being treated fairly and equally because of those who came before them. One prominent young person who's very vocal told author Anne-Marie Hayek, all the previous generations have left us with is crumbling foundations. That's their perspective of all that has come before them. Now, we might be quick to get frustrated and blow up in anger. Perhaps I've already frustrated some of you. But what we have to admit is that there is, listen, a sliver of truth to what they are saying. There is a piece of truth there. God says in Exodus 20, verse 5, He says, I, the Lord, am God, a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. You could also see texts like Exodus 34, 7, Numbers 14, 18, Psalm 79, 8, Psalm 109, 14, Isaiah 65, 6 to 7, Jeremiah 32, 18. These are all places where the Bible teaches us that our decisions, both good and bad, both righteous and sinful, have an effect on those outside of us. They can harm those around us and even those who come after us. The Lord visiting the iniquity on the sons to the fourth, third and fourth generation. The world is in the place that it is in. What if the newspaper asked, I don't know if anyone here reads a newspaper, but what if the newspaper said, what's wrong with the world today? 
Some of us might say, I am, like Chesterton. Others, who I've just explained, will say, you are. The Bible says, what's wrong with the world today? It gives a one-word answer. Sin. That's the problem in the world today. Transgressing God's covenant. Taking what God has made and flipping it upside down. Rejecting God's order for the world. Rebelling against him. Rebelling against your neighbor. Sin is what leads to the problems in the world today. And we're often prone to believe that we have the solution to the world's problem. If only the right party was in power, only if the younger generation wasn't screwing everything up, if only people would listen to me and my opinions, I could fix all the problems in our world today, especially here in America. The younger generation definitely believes they are the savior for all the problems in our world. That is, those outside of Christ. One prominent voice in our younger generation said, we need to dismantle everything that came before us to build a new world. That's what she said. But change rooted in sin just leads to different problems and more problems. Praise be to God that the scriptures offer us a solution to the world's problem. That we can go to those who are looking around and saying things are really messed up and we could say, yeah, they are. But God has an answer. God has a solution. They offer one solution to the world's problems. And that's where we're headed this morning. If you take your text, look with me. This principle that I've been chatting about here briefly, about the idea that, you know, our sins have ramifications. That what we choose to say or do will affect others. It's present here in our chapter. Look at verse 1. Genesis 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen. What might happen? What could possibly happen? No, I'm going to tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. There are two phrases in here that are very uniquely prophetic. It's the way a prophet would introduce a message from God. That that's phrase, assemble and listen. That's the way a prophet would summon people together to listen to a message from God. It's in Isaiah 48, verse 14, when Isaiah the prophet says, Israel, assemble yourselves together and listen to what God has for you. Very prophetic. There's also another phrase in there. It says, in the days to come. In the days to come. Now, if you were to translate that more exact, it would be in the last days. That's what it says. In the last days. Also very prophetic language. Isaiah 2.2. So in the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy, he says, listen, you need to know what's going to happen in the last days. And he begins talking about the victory over God, or sorry, the victory of God over the problem in the world. It's Isaiah 2.2. In the last days, something amazing is going to happen. Micah 4.1, same thing. Micah's talking about the day when God's victory would be known on the earth. He says, in the last days. 
And so Jacob here, he's on his deathbed. We, we began this scene last week as we saw Jacob blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, bringing them into the family. And so here is the covenant partner of God, the individual that God has tied himself to, he's bound himself to in relationship based on what? Do you remember a covenant is a relationship established on what? Pro- promises. So God has made promises to this man that through him, he is going to bring blessing to all nations. And now Jacob opens his mouth to prophesy, to say what shall happen. Over his 12 sons, these individuals who would become the nation of Israel through which God would bring the blessing of redemption, of rescue from the world's problem. That we could live in fellowship with God once again. And Jacob says, listen children, this is what's going to happen. And he talks to each one of them. Now peek, here's what we're going to do. Look ahead to verse 28. This is a summary of everything Jacob does here. It's a conclusion. It's a poem from verse 2 to verse 27 is a Hebrew poem. And verse 28 is the conclusion. Here's what I just said, or here's what just happened. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. So each person is mentioned, all of his children. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them. Blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. We're going to see the word blessed or blessing nine times in the passage. Three of those times happen right there at the last verse. He blessed them, blessing them with a blessing suitable to each person. Each son, based on his actions, whether good or bad, received a suitable blessing for those actions. So that is the the attributes of the individuals, the dispositions of the individuals, the good things about the individuals, the really nasty things about the individuals, their sin, in some way results in the blessing that they receive. Do you get that? It's almost merit-based. Okay? Just, Simeon, you're really screwed up, so here's what's going to happen. Judah, things went really well, so here's what's going to happen. Do you get that? That's what's going on in these blessings. One author said it like this. Jacob blesses the tribes, but not independently from their character. The prophecies are based on the praise or blame of the fathers, end quote. So the the sins of the fathers will be visited on the children. They'll be present. Possibilities, you might say, in the lives of their children. So fathers in the room, your sins, soon to be fathers, your sins will affect your children. God's word. Mothers, happy Mother's Day. Your sins will affect the lives of your children. Humans in the room, children in the room. When we choose to rebel against God, when we hear his good plan and good will for this creation, for, for the way that we should order our lives and think about our identity, and when we take that and say, no thanks, I'll decide everything, and we transgress God, our decisions will have a massive impact on the lives of those around us, the community that we're a part of, the children and families that come from us. Sin haunts the world. 
Sin haunts families. Sin haunts me. But praise be to God, there is a solution. There's an answer. And, but before we get to the solution, since none of you know what the solution is, uh, we'll look through these blessings and some are going to look, we're not going to look at every name, okay? We're not going to look at every name. But some of the blessings that we're going to look at look the opposite of blessings. They look like anti-blessings or curses. But every single one is explained in verse 28. These are blessings that Jacob blessed them with when he blessed them. So somehow, it's all blessing. It's all for good. It's all for God's good. So we're going to ask How does that all work? And what we're going to do is we're going to look at five of the names, the five that receive the most attention. That would be Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Those are the first three we'll look at. They get what you might say, anti-blessing. In fact, Jacob will say, cursed. That doesn't sound like blessing. It's actually the opposite of blessing. But then we'll look at Judah and Joseph. They receive blessing. We're going to kind of take the passage in that way. Not that the other names, like Naphtali and Zebulun, they were very important, significant things are said, but just for the sake of time, we can sit down with me and we can unpack all of that together. But they each receive a blessing fitting to them. So verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. In verse 3, Jacob says something like this. As my firstborn, I had so much hope for you. You were my prized possession. I was so excited when you were born. And I had everything. I reserved everything for you. The greatest blessing. I tucked it away. And it was yours for the taking. Verse 4, you did everything to screw it up. You, You gave it up. You threw it away. You were preeminent, but now you are not. He says you are as unstable as water. That word unstable, it's the, the root is reckless. He was a reckless person, like water without walls. You know, once a meal, one of the cups on our table gets reckless, and it tips over, and all the water, without the boundary of the cup, the water just runs all over the place. It trips down the crack in the middle of our table and all over the floor, and you know we have to clean it up. Reuben was reckless. He was unchecked. No borders, no wall. Specifically, he was reckless with desire. Desire. Desire whatever he wanted. He, and what did he want? Well, he wanted his father's concubine, Bilhah. Genesis 35. And he wanted what he wanted. He wanted to experience what he wanted. And so he went after it, driven by his desire, not driven by holiness, not driven by God's glory, not driven by God's order and ways, but driven by a want for whatever he wanted. He defiled himself. He defiled his father. He took whatever he wanted. And so he is humiliated here, demoted, put all the way down. We talked about last week, Hosea. Who's the firstborn of Jacob, according to Hosea? Is it Reuben? No, it's adopted son Ephraim. So Reuben is taken out, and as the story of Scripture unfolds and the people of Israel, we follow their story, Reuben really becomes very insignificant. 
No prophet, no priest, no king, no judge ever comes from Reuben. They're mentioned one time in the New Testament, and that's in Revelation 5 when it lists all the tribes of Israel. So it's just kind of disappear. It's because Reuben, he was typified or driven by unchecked desire. Human fleshly desire. Victor Hamilton says, from this first oracle, the teaching is clear that the behavior of one individual affects the destiny of his descendants. That's weighty, that idea, for me as a dad. So Reuben, he's not the solution, not the answer to the problem. Look at Simeon and Levi beginning in verse five. Simeon and Levi are brothers, that's their, their blood brothers, but they're also like in it together. What are they in together for? It says, their weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. Oh, my glory be not joined to their company. For their ang- in their anger, they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. This is an anti-blessing. They're going to be separated, pulled out from among the people. The dad says, listen, I don't want to be tethered to you in any way. There needs to be a separation from us, a splitting up. I will divide them and scatter them. My glory will not be in them. This is a prophetic utterance based on Simeon and Levi's actions. It's suitable for them. Why such a harsh blessing? Well, because Simeon and Levi are instruments of violence. They're murderers. And because they take pleasure in willful destruction. They get pleasure, or they got pleasure from destroying others. This is most certainly referring back to Dinah, the Dinah instance. Remember, Dinah was taken by Shechem, the leader of the Shechemites, and was assaulted and taken advantage of. And Dinah needed a defender who could come and rescue her and give out proper vengeance for the crimes against her. But what she got were Simeon and Levi, who, yes, were trying to get Dinah rescue her and uh, dole out some sort of punishment, but they went above and beyond, if you remember. They convinced all the men of Shechem to be circumcised, and then they snuck in as these men are uh, healing, and he killed them all. And then they plundered their houses, enslaved their family, and apparently Jacob knows something that it didn't say then that took pleasure in doing this. They took pleasure in doing it. Dinah needed vengeance, but Simeon and Levi went above and beyond in pleasure-driven wrath and pleasure-filled murder. While Reuben was typified, driven by unchecked desire, Simeon and Levi are driven by an appetite for gruesome revenge. Revenge at all costs. And so they too are humiliated, they're scattered. We know historically, Levi is given a handful of cities scattered among the tribes of Israel. They don't get a land allotment. Simeon is given a very small piece of land inside Judah, so surrounded by Judah, and eventually become consumed by Judah so that Simeon as a tribe kind of 
ceases to exist. They have no more land. They just become Judah. They're absorbed. A heart after revenge does not get blessing and does not answer the world's desire for a solution. So now we move to Judah, the first son who gets what we'd all be like, yeah, that sounds way more positive than everything we've heard so far. Judah, beginning in verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah's a lion's cub from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? You don't wake a sleeping lion. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. That is, until the tribute comes to him and beyond. And continue in that verse. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be, are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Judah here is elevated. Judah, your brother shall praise you and bow down to you. The word praise, overwhelming, it means give thanks. And overwhelmingly it's used with God. As the object, praise God, give thanks to God. 70, Psalm 75 1, we give thanks to you, O God. That's how it's usually used. But here, Jacob prophetically tells Judah, someday your brothers will give thanks to you. They'll be thankful for you. They will have gratitude for you such that they will bow their lives to you. That seems like an elevation, right? A blessing. Further, Jacob says, you will conquer your enemies. That's what the, your hand on your enemy's neck. And the whole thing about the lion, that's about the victory of Judah over God's enemies. And over the enemy of God's people. Judah is like a growing lion. He might be a cub now, but Judah will come into fullness. He will grow and be a roaring, devouring lion. And dominate all of his enemies. Who would dare rouse the lion of Judah? So Judah's a lion that will win over every enemy. He goes on. Jacob, you will possess the scepter of kingly authority. And when it comes into your hand, it will not depart. You'll have an eternal kingdom until tribute is paid to you. Until everyone acknowledges that you are the king and beyond, you will hold the scepter. You will have authority. It's interesting. Nothing in Genesis, there's no hint yet that the people of Israel will have a king. In fact, a king won't be established for a long time. But prophetically, Jacob says, you will be the king. It will be given to you, the scepter. And it's like all the peoples of the world will acknowledge your authority. Further, this beautiful kingdom that is going to be given to Judah will be in abundance. That's verse 11 and 12, all about the wine. It's really about the abundance of Judah's kingdom. It's like a vine dresser who has so many grapes, I don't care if my donkeys eat the grapes. I I got grapes coming out of my ears. I don't need more grapes. Abundance. Actually, I have so much grapes that all my clothes are red because I wash my clothes in my grape juice because I have so many grapes. And you see how dark my eyes are? That's because I just drink so much wine. I, it's, I have a fountain of wine in my kitchen. 
And so I just drink out of it. And you can see how dark my lips are from all the wine that I drink when I smile because in Judah's kingdom, you don't get stained teeth. And so my teeth are like really white compared to the, the stain on my lips. That's what verses 11 and 12 are saying. This just an overwhelming abundance of blessing in Judah's kingdom. Finally, this sounds like a blessing. In fact, it sounds like the blessing, the promise that the world needs. All nations coming into an eternal kingdom and knowing abundance. But why did Judah receive this elevation? Not because he was without sin. He had sinned. Remember, he had committed crimes against his daughter-in-law in that like, really nasty situation. But Judah, he was driven to repentance and sacrificial love. We've unpacked this before in Genesis. But when Judah committed the crime against his daughter and he found out he was broken and he repented, he confessed that he had wronged her, he brought her into the safety of his home, he never harmed her again, he was wrong and he confessed it. And then his life became one of sacrificial love. Remember, he offered the Lord of Egypt, listen, don't take Benjamin, that'll destroy my dad, that'll destroy Benjamin's life, take me instead. Do you remember that? And then that's when Joseph was like, I'm your brother. Sacrificial love and repentance. That's what drove Judah. Even though he was broken, even though he wasn't perfect, he was a man of repentance and love. So he's elevated here. He's blessed. Judah's blessing is first realized in David, the king who comes from him and establishes a great kingdom, conquering many of God's enemies. Solomon is further realized in Solomon when he has tons of prosperity, but it's never fully realized. This glorious passage was never fully realized in the Old Testament. From verse 13 to 21, we read of other blessings. And what is said is very important there. But we're going to move on to Joseph now, to verse 22. Some of these things said to Zebulun and Issachar and Dan, they're actually really hard to make sense of. And I can help you if, you, if you're like really interested in that. Some of those, in fact, the, the prophecy given to Naphtali is said to be one of the most difficult verses in Hebrew to translate to English. So it's like you're studying this and out of nowhere, it's like impossible to make sense of. But scholars have tried, and so we can work through that. But if we look at Joseph, here's the second blessing. So we've seen two anti-blessings. Here's the second blessing, beginning in verse 22. I'm not going to read it. We've already read 22 to 26. But Joseph is given blessing. Nine times the word blessing or blessed appears in our passage. Three of them are at the end there in verse 28. The other six are said to Joseph. You're blessed, Joseph. God has blessed you with a blessing. You're blessed. You've got blessing and blessed blessing six times. So Jacob prophesies that Joseph will get an exponential blessing as compared to his brothers. We know from last week that his portion is doubled because of his children, Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph is already receiving a major blessing in his role in Egypt, in his role over Israel, and the, all the blessings that Pharaoh has given him. And here Jacob acknowledges God is up to something in your life. 
The Almighty One of Jacob has been at work. He has, when your brothers wanted to harm you, it was God who stayed their hand. It was God who has led you to where you are today. The stone of Israel has been your rock and foundation. And so, yeah, you're blessed. That's what Jacob says. Now, why is Joseph blessed? Well, obviously, God's grace, the shepherd shepherding him. But also, we could say Joseph is driven by this amazing trust in God's purposes. And and by this attitude to seek God no matter what. When thrown into the pit and brought into slavery into Egypt, Joseph's faith in God didn't waver. He believed, we'll see in the next passages, that everything he was going through was for God's glory and for his good. He believed that. He trusted God. And not only that, he sought God in every situation. When tempted by Potiphar's wife, listen, you can live by desire. Joseph said, no, I will live pursuing God. He's thrown into prison. When thrown into prison, he seeks God and becomes a blessing to others. When asked, hey, I hear you can interpret dreams, what did Joseph say? What? Not me. God can. And so Joseph just lives this life trusting in God and seeking God, and he's blessed. How are all of these, even the anti-blessings, how are they blessings? Well, it's all a blessing because God here, prophetically through Jacob, is arranging the family in such a way that he can bring about a true Judah and a greater Joseph. Reuben is humbled so that the people are not led by a desire-seeking leader. Simeon and Levi are brought down so that revenge is not a mantle in Israel. Judah and Joseph are lifted up so that the legacy of repentance and sacrificial love and trust in God and a life seeking God so they, they might be the things that define Israel. Do you see that? And so it's a blessing to the world because God has ordered this broken family that his glory might come up through them. Praise God that he ordered these blessings this way. Our current culture is struggling with the problems in the world and pointing the finger backwards saying, this is your fault. We can speak to our culture. Christians, you are called to minister the gospel to those in our fallen world. And so you can go to those in our culture and say, you know what? You're right. Mistakes in the past have broken the world. It's true. And you could actually take them all the way back to the garden. And you could say, let me introduce you to a man named Adam. Adam was created by God and given a world without problems. A a perfect world. No no confusion about identity, no strife in relationships. Actually, he walked with God. Perfect, right? Well, because of Adam and his sin, his rebellion against God, his elevating himself up, because of that, all kinds of problems came into the world. Relational strife, a pained earth, hatred for others, a feeling of confusion and loss of identity, murder, theft, death, and the list goes on. All of these are in the world because of sin. We could take our secular friends to Genesis 49 and say, look, the the sins of the father do affect the lineage. 
Yet, listen, then we offer the correction. We offer the correction. It's not just the sins of the past. It's the reality of sin in me and you. This is what's wrong with the world today. According to Romans, it's not just that Adam sinned and screwed it up for the rest of us. It's that Adam sinned and so does every person. We all fall short of God's glory. Made to know and love God, to live in the blessing of being at peace with him, we all choose in a million different ways to become gods ourselves, to put ourselves first instead of others, to seek our own glory instead of the glory of God, to be driven by desire instead of holiness, to be want revenge instead of trusting in God. And so there's a million different problems. Number one being separation from God. Well, the answer to the solution has to destroy the power of sin, if that's the problem. And so the answer is not to point the finger. Listen, we cannot point the finger. Do you ever hear that? Like, Never mind. We can't point the finger back at the younger or secular culture and say, this is your problem. That's not the answer. Or, or vengeful wrath, that's not the answer. Unchecked desires, that's not the answer. The answer to today's problems is to seek the blessing that God promised to give the world through Jacob. God told Jacob, I'll give you children and through one of your children, I will restore blessing. And so on his deathbed, Jacob prophetically looks at Judah and he says, listen, from you will come one who will be the solution. He'll have a kingdom that will never fail, never end, never be threatened. It will be of abundance, abundant life in his kingdom. He's a lion that will destroy the enemy. And when Jesus Christ was born into the world, filled with the problems because of sin, he was born of the tribe of Judah. His birth marked the last days that Jacob spoke of, that Isaiah spoke of, that Micah spoke of. Can you believe that Hebrews begins in this way? In these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. How crazy that at Jesus' first miracle, what does he do? He takes water, which the world has in abundance, and he says, this is the choicest wine. So is there abundant wine in Jesus' kingdom? Yeah, he can make water wine. It's never going to run out. He rode a donkey into Jerusalem, was hailed as the king. As the promised son of Judah, he lived a perfect life, never in need of repentance like Judah, the failed Judah, never a part of the problem. He could have looked at the past and said, this is your mess, or at the, the people around him, this is your mess. He could have pointed ahead to me and said, this is your mess. If he wrote to the newspaper, he would have said, not me. I'm not a part of the problem. For he was the true Joseph who trusted and sought the Father at all times. But he did not point the finger. Instead, in solidarity with us, get this. Though he need not, he entered into a baptism of repentance through John's baptism. He lived a life of sacrificial love. Even though a lion, he became a lamb and willingly laid down his life to atone for our sins. Jesus entered our death, separated from God. But as God, and by the will of the Father, he was raised, Revelation 5 says, 
Who dares rouse the lion? God the Father raises him from the grave and enthrones him as the forever king. So now people from all nations are coming to know this king as they bow their lives to him, trusting that his work can be and is the solution. One day, according to Philippians, every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. And this message that I've just unpacked, this good news of the Lion of Judah taking our sins to conquer death is the only solution to the problems facing our world today. For by faith in this truth, by faith in the great name of the work of Jesus, we're freed from the sin that plagues us, that corrupts us. The power of sin no longer has dominion over us. And what Jesus does is he takes these broken, messed up lives, he makes them fully new, and he unleashes us to be a blessing in the world. To draw others to know the love of Jesus Christ. So if you want to stop the plague of sin that leads to the problems in the world, first we own our sins like Chesterton. Instead of pointing the finger like Judah, we repent of our sins. We acknowledge to the holy God that we have transgressed his covenant. Saved by Christ, we begin to live lives of sacrificial love. What would it look like to live sacrificially for those who don't deserve our love or sacrifice? That's what Jesus did for us. And we trust in God. We trust in God, we seek the Father and the answer for the answer of all the problems. In Jesus Christ, God invites all creation, not just those born of Jacob, but all who put their faith in Jesus to carry on his legacy. To finally a solution to stop the iniquity from one generation to the next is fathers and mothers and humans, you build your life on Jesus Christ and his legacy. And the world is blessed. Let us pray. Father, we live in a broken world. We can all attest to it. Things are not as they should be. Make us humble to acknowledge that our sin is part of the problem. That sin has broken so many things. But that in Jesus Christ, all things can be and are being made new. Not one stone will be left unhealed from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So help us to proclaim this good news to our Neighbors, to our coworkers, when the world begins to vent, remind us we have a solution. Help us to minister this, good, minister this good news to one another that you sacrificially gave your life to end the legacy of sin. Pray this in Jesus' name.